Hello, everyone, and welcome to Everyday Sublime. This is your host, Josh Summers, and I'm really glad you're here today. In today's episode, I'll be bringing you my long-form conversation with Dr. Judith Blackstone. And as I say here, uh, some of you have been encouraging me to have Judith Blackstone on, and I'm very grateful for that suggestion. Um, In a rather synchronous way, uh, Judith combines several themes that I've been personally exploring, the theme of awakening, the theme of spiritual practice, and the theme of healing trauma. And she weaves these together, the theme of spiritual awakening, consciousness or embodied awareness, and the healing of trauma. She, she weaves these three together in what she calls the realization process. And I, in the show notes, I'll be giving you links to her website um, on the realization process and also to our wonderful book, Trauma and the Unbound Body. Um, so I'm very happy about this conversation. And I hope you enjoy it. What I particularly found interesting is that the kind of awareness she's cultivating and the way she encourages to work with the breath in her realization process, these are all approaches to working with experience that are um, that lend themselves beautifully to be integrated within the practice of yin yoga. So if you're one of the listeners that's coming from the yin yoga camp, um, if you're a yin yoga enthusiast, I highly recommend checking out her work. Um, I've been using a lot of her themes and approaches in my own teaching lately, and I've been finding that integration very fruitful. So I wish you the best with it too. Okay, without further ado, I now bring you Judith Blackstone. Today, I am with Judith Blackstone. Judith, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Thank you. Thank you for having me here. My pleasure. Um, so one of the things I wanted to say at the beginning was to, is to share with you that to date, you are the most requested guest to come on the podcast. Mm. Um, but now the, the caveat to that is it was two requests <laughs> that came through. You don't so get a lot. Huh? I don't get a lot of requests <laughs> from the audience of people asking me to bring people on yet. So but, two people. Hmm. Two people, but they were both very insightful uh, comments and requests. And um, I have to say, uh, when I looked into your work and started reading about what you're doing in, in terms of what you call a realization process, um, it immediately struck me as that you are weaving together and synthesizing some very, very important themes, namely spiritual awakening, embodiment, and the healing of trauma. And to my ears, uh, you're doing this in a very unique and creative way that definitely sounds like it's born out of your own biographical experience. It, it was, it is, yes. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot that I, and this, this is, this, this, these three topics relate to kind of how I'm now envisioning the scope of this podcast in general and I'm sort of referring to this Everyday Sublime is a podcast that's exploring a full spectrum spirituality, not just light, but also opening to the very dark and shadowy aspects of being and, and how that together, integrated together, can promote a, an experience of unity. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're, I think you're right in the strike zone of all of yes, these themes. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
maybe as a, as a place to start, uh, what do you see as the salient elements of your own life's experience that brought you to this, the culmination of the work you're involved with right now? Uh, that's easy for me to answer. I, uh, when I was in my 20s, it was quite a while ago now, I injured myself uh, quite badly. I had been a professional dancer uh, since, I was a, since I was a child, so I was very invested in it. And I had to work very hard. And in my 20s, I, uh, I injured myself so badly that I wasn't able to dance. And uh, also being in my 20s, I, of course, thought that was the absolute end of the world. And I, I went to so many healers at that point. Um, I really explored a lot of avenues. I finally had surgery on my back, which turned out, of course, to make it a lot worse. Then I was really in trouble. And finally, I was just left on my own resources. And um, and so that was the main that was the main turning point for me. I had to find a way. Um, <laughs> just just uh, just my personal. I just refused to be felled at that point. Mm. Um, and so there's I have that going for me. Um, but then I was also in this really untenable kind of position and in pain and non-functional, whereas I had been functioning highly. Um, so, um, so I had to find a way to heal myself. Now, at the same time, I had people coming to my loft where I lived. I lived in a loft in the downtown Manhattan, um, for dance classes. That was how I made my living. And I had to continue making my living to pay my rent. So, uh, so everything that I learned in my self-attuning, refining, exploratory process of, of trying to heal myself, I then talked to the people coming uh, for dance classes because that was all like I couldn't dance. So, so I just kept teaching them what I was learning in my exploration. So that was the beginning of it. And this injury and the subsequent surgery that you had, this sounds like it, did they, cre- did they do some sort of fusion or what was the, the nature right. of, the, of, they, the, of the... They fused, yes. They... <laughs> I, I um I have scoliosis and I've had that all my life, but I or that I don't know, was noticed when I was eleven, as it often is. Um, but I had through vigorous dance training been able to have what they call a well compensated curvature where my head was over the center of the bottom of my torso, and um and I was really very strong and centered actually. And um and then uh Someone came and uh, in their choreography sent me out out of that very important whack that I had been cultivating for many years. So, so then, um, of course, I was in pain, couldn't dance. And then after, as I say, going around to so many different people for help, they fused me in the out-of-whack position. That was really bad. I was like, I was so disoriented. I could just barely walk across the room. Um, I felt like I had been cut in half, like like a magician's assistant, and then sort of plopped back together, you know. So uh, I couldn't, I couldn't sit, you know. I, I just couldn't do anything. So, um, so yeah. So it was a, uh, in that sense, very desperate sort of situation. But but not acute, so I had the rest of my life to to work on healing it, which I 
which I have. So that, yeah, that's that's what I want to. What we getting into that is how you were able to facilitate that undoing or the healing of that, you know, and, and not to harp on the sort of uh, the mention of the magician's assist, assistant, you know, <laughs> in a, sort of a, a way that I wasn't going to bring up until unless you mention it, but you did. Uh, your name is Blackstone, and and the one of the great magicians that I ever knew was 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 the great <laughs> yeah. Blackstone. And uh, I was going to ask you if your primary trauma in life was was being the daughter of this magician who cut you in half in the box. <laughs> but it sounds like that's, you had that's you had right. that was my my daddy, the magician. And okay. uh, in fact, Blackstone is a stage name that was given to me when I was eleven. It's uh, quite different to my to my actual name. Right. But I do get. In fact, I've gotten mail from some kind of Blackstone Society, wanting to know if I'm like one of them and what my roots are and. They're very disappointed to hear that it's just a made-up name. Yeah. <laughs> but I've had it for a long time, since I was 11. So by now, it feels like my name. You know, I don't know if you'd make this connection, but in listening to you just tell that much of your biography, it it sounded to me like there were some archetypical themes of of seeking healing and then in the process of seeking healing, also getting, in a way, re-traumatized. Like, like, so... I, I, people that are creative, I, I feel like they find a great healing energy within whatever art medium they they, they connect with. Um, and for me, that was that was uh, that kind of culminated in physical asana practice, doing yoga. And I know many many get drawn to that. Um, and then, depending on the system or style, there's ways that that can, um, you know, people can get quite injured and traumatized within that. Um, and it sounds like there was, there was a, a bit of that energy or dynamic for you. You know, I don't have any sense of having been re-traumatized. I was, I was traumatized enough, but, but um, no, I mean, everyone I went to tried their hardest to, to heal me, just weren't able to. It was a hard, it was a hard situation. Uh, I, did, I did get some good help from, from some people. Uh, but not enough, you know. But no, I didn't feel re-traumatized. I tried doing yoga, but I wasn't able to. And and that was very painful to me. I didn't think of it as trauma, but it was because I'd always been like, you know, adept, you know, I could walk into any sort of... I guess what I meant was the, the injury of from sustained from dance. You know, dance was, from dance. dance was probably a healing, healing experience for you on many levels. And then suddenly something in it bite bit you dance was a spiritual experience for me um but it was also rather hazardous you know they, we think of dancers as being in touch with their bodies and maybe these days hopefully they are but in in those days uh, it was quite objectifying mm -hmm. uh you know i was looking in the mirror and making sure that i was you know that my leg was as high as the person next to me and so forth and you know i was out there in the mirror and i was also making myself much stronger because I had to for the for the material that I was being asked to perform. I was making myself much stronger than my body was, you know, should have been trying to do. Um, so, uh, so no. At the beginning of my dance career as a child, it was very spiritually satisfying. As I got older, it was a it became a, a sport, an athletic challenge that I that I had to work very hard and, and in fact, injure myself in order to meet. Mm -hmm. So I wouldn't say dancing itself is healing. Yeah, so, okay. yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, the, I mean, the, the performative 
professionalism of of any of these disciplines when they get to a certain point can get quite uh, quite challenging to people if you know, if your bodies aren't are like from a skeletal perspective capable of doing certain ranges of motion and then you're we're pushing against that and other tissues are eventually going to give out this is a lot of the the listeners in the podcast are um, probably coming in from a, a, a dimension of yoga land called yin yoga and in yin yoga uh, I don't know if you've experienced it or encountered it but basically you you, you stay passively in in floor-based postures for a few minutes um, and really let things relax but the the key thing about alignment in them is that everybody needs to find their unique f- manifestation of the alignment because everybody we re- we acknowledge everyone's bones are different and because of that that unique skeletal variation there's no one size fits all thing so I, I people that wash up to the shores of this practice are usually ones that have been harmed or abused and I, that's the way I feel like I was within certain styles of asana where I was getting adjusted cranked and was getting similar kinds of stress fractures and, and things to like what you're, I didn't need s- surgery, but it was, I was definitely hobbled for a while. And in the, in the interest of trying to heal myself through a, a discipline and then sort of re-injuring or causing new injuries. Um, but that, the, 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 the part of the reason why like your converse, you, what your expertise I think is going to be so relevant to the listeners, particularly the ones that are tuning in from the yin yoga world is the way you connect uh, the relationship between trauma as it takes shape in the body or takes form in the body. And then how the relationship between embodied awareness and fundamental consciousness, which is sort of a way that you describe a dimension of awareness, um, how that facilitates the, the, the release, the, the unfixations or or the unfixing or the, the, the release of the constrictions in the tissue that um, sort of calcify or harden around these these difficult experiences. Um, so I have my sense of how this occurs, but I, I always love to hear from people like, what do you make of the etiology of trauma as it becomes embodied? And and just to, to, to make this a little bit easier for you, I know you have to, in your book, you go off often, you try to explain that what you're talking about is really your experience of it. And it's not, you're not t- talking about uh, a metaphysical claim around it, or you're not necessarily trying to describe it objectively from a scientific materialistic perspective, but really just what you see, uh, it's, un- it's more like what your experience of it is. And then based on your experience and working with other people and you're in the psychotherapy practice to going through this experience, how it can get uh, released and, and freed up. Yeah, so basically the realization process is a way, of um, a series of practices or or self-attunement exercises to uncover and experience a very subtle consciousness, actually experiences unified consciousness pervading our body, pervading our whole body, which gives us a deep sense of contact with the whole internal space of our body. And And at the same time, that we experience that same consciousness that's pervading our body, we experience it pervading our whole environment. Mm -hmm. And that means that it gives us a sense of internal wholeness at the same time that it gives us a sense of self-other oneness. So um, I discovered that because as we were just speaking, I needed in order to heal myself, I needed to attune to myself more and more subtly 
to penetrate through this bone, uh, you know, that they that they had fused, yeah. which was like a big, just like a big lump, you know, in my lower back. Which interestingly, and it taught me so much, was mirrored everywhere in my body. That one uh, big. Uh, dense place where they had fused the bone, I could then feel everywhere in my eyes and my ears and my legs and my hands, everywhere. So I realized that we were built on this kind of, what I would now, I guess, call self-similarity that they talk about in, in fractal geometry, um, where if you squeeze one thing, <laughs> it's mirrored everywhere. And, so, so, uh, so actually, can you open, I would like to hear more about that. You were... You feel, I, I can imagine you feeling a very big block of, of of dull energy in your lower back where things were fused, but you were saying you, that would that was refracted throughout every other part of your body, like almost yes, like a, a hologram refracted. where you could wherever part you looked, you could see the that yes, that primary yeah. blockage. There's a density, yes, and not just of energy, but of matter. But yes, energy and matter. So um, so right away I began to learn very interesting things about the body and the mind. Uh, because I had to attune to myself on a more and more subtle level. Um, another thing I learned at the beginning of this process was that if I really gave my weight to the floor, which I spent a lot of time, as you can imagine, just lying on my back on the floor of my loft, mm -hmm. I had been hoping to dance. Uh, so lying on the floor and just giving my weight to the ground, I began to feel that the more I dropped my weight to the ground, some mysterious kind of energy came up from the ground and actually pulled me into alignment. I found that just fascinating that there seemed to be built into the universe, to gravity, um, this ability to bring us towards balance and towards health and, uh, and towards, you know, what I also eventually realized was also spiritual openness. So, um, and I want, if I can interject briefly, what's interesting to me too in this story is that this is something you are coming to very much on your own at this point. Yet you did go seek healing modalities, but it sounds like this process was really sort of a very intuitive, organic coming to awareness in you around what the process was. It wasn't like you were following a, a formula in a, in, a, in, a, in a spiritual teaching at this point. Like this is, this was something that you came to. And, it, and, and as you say, you talk about resting in the floor and, and gravity. The, the first word that pops in my head is that it's almost as though that contact with groundedness facilitated a surrender so that other uh, in you, like a surrender of the small self. So a, a, a deeper dimension of your being could, could, could emerge. Yes, I think so. Yes, you know, it became a really something I received. You know, very often, well, people will, you know, work with me will ask me, well, how did you develop this? And I really didn't, you know, uh, you know, it wasn't at all hokey. I mean, it didn't like I didn't hear it coming through a crack in the ceiling, but not that there's anything hokey about his St. John's experience, but, <laughs> but that's not how it came to me. But I did just follow a line of organic opening. Mm -hmm. Right, that 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 I received, and um, later on, when I did get to to actually go into spiritual teachings, I found that in, for example, in Zen Buddhism, they have a they have a meditation called Shikantaza, which is just simply based on just sitting and surrendering to gravity, 
And um, and I was able to feel when I lived at the Zen monastery, which is quite a few years later, that um, that yes, you just sit there and gravity pulls you deeper and deeper and deeper inside. Well, I had to do more than that in order to heal myself, but that was certainly at the at the root of it, one of the important roots. Um, in terms of the tightening of the tissues, I mean, one of the things that um, that distinguishes the way I'm working with trauma from the most prevalent uh, somatic therapy working with trauma around today is that I'm not working directly with the nervous system. I'm working with the fascia. I think it's the fascia. Mm-hmm. We're, we're actually learning more and more about fascia and some like more subtle dimension that's kind of akin to the fascia or, or associated with it. So I'm not exactly sure what it is, but it seems to be the fascia and um, and it's everywhere in the body. Uh, you know, it's it's a level of wholeness really. Uh, either Ralph called it a collagen matrix and um, it's very susceptible to the mind. And as I was, so as I was trying to get in touch with myself, this is all just, I was trying to get in touch with myself to regain myself. And of course I had to undo a lot of that objectified muscular armature that I had so carefully created and undo it in order to get deeper in touch with myself. But then I found that there were areas that I could not, could not get in touch with. And, and those were rigidities in the body. And when I began to focus within them, I could feel them move further into constriction, interestingly, and then release. Right. So these were movements of kind of, what I believe are like fascial holding patterns in the body connected to memory um, that contain within themselves movement. The the, the original protective, usually in childhood, movement into the constriction contained in the body, contained the memory, contained even a feeling of the child's mentality that moved into that constriction and then it would move further into constriction and then release. I don't want to give the impression that I made this up all by myself. I worked with a wonderful woman named Lydia Yohe, who um, used to do Alexandra Tech, her version of Alexandra Technique, which is really quite a good uh, improvement, I think, on Alexandra Technique. And she said she was doing that. She was feeling for the movement inside the tensions and giving them a little nudge towards <laughs> towards where they seem to be going, towards where that constriction wanted to go, and then let go. Uh, and then she would let go, and, and a release would occur. And so all I was doing that was really different from that was I was doing it on and in myself. I didn't need any more, you know, anyone from outside of myself. I also worked with someone who taught me about what he called the mental level of the body, which was very interesting. And, and he did um, his own version. I worked with a lot of very independently minded people. He did his own version of Rolfing, <clears throat> uh, where he would uh, stick his gigantic elbows into the tensions in my body. I was very desperate for healing and connect what he felt was his mental level with mine. Mm. And, um, and interestingly, that that had the same effect. It would help me really, uh, really find where I had constricted myself and let go from a very deep level of myself and maintain those releases, which is a 
is the main problem really with rolfing is that often the changes are not maintained. But in connecting to this very subtle level of the of the mind-body interface, um, I was able to claim those releases, work further with the tensions, release them, and maintain them. So, so those two people, uh, his name was Amos Gunsberg and Lydia, they were probably the two body work people who, who I gained the most from. And then I was just working and working with these, you know, scoliosis, the kind that I have anyway, really is tension around the spine. You know, it's 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 spasm in the in the tissue. So I had a lot had a life's work ahead of me of releasing those those spasms, uh, based on what I learned really from Amos and, and Lydia. Okay, so there. <laughs> about, no, that's that's fantastic. There's about three topics alive in my head right now. One which I, I want to get into at some point anyway with you, which is around kind of the way you explain the, 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 the sedimentation of trauma or the, the way that trauma comes about. And, 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 and it, it, cause it, I was dismissive of the traumatic trauma discussion for a long time, because if I thought about my own life, I thought, you know, I, there was some bumps and difficulties here or there, but there was nothing what I would label as traumatic, or if I did, it would seem like I was, I was really being very hyperbolic about minor insults. Yeah. Um, but, I think it's the wrong word too, you know, just. Well, in reading about it and, and actually, and just reflecting on myself, you know, in Buddhism, there's this concept of dukkha, which is the, the you know this this experience in life of suffering or discontent or unsatisfactoriness, um, and literally it could mean that that which makes difficult life difficult, that which is hard to bear, and it. I've been reflecting on how you know we get born into this world, on, within conditions that we don't understand, and then as a result of not understanding the conditions that we're born into, as we become conscious more, we start acting out from a from a limited perception of the way things are. And that limited perception will reinforce the kind of the warped conditions that we were born into until there's a, a, a deeper level of, of waking up. And um, it, it just, reading through your book, I couldn't help but think that, that this is what the Buddha may have been getting at with this, with this term dukkha. Yeah, yeah. In a, in a in a general way, um, trauma, you know, we're, so we're using the word trauma now in a, in a very, in a very general way. And so, and, and so just to be part of the conversation, I'm also using the word trauma and, and meaning by that is, as I think many people are today, meaning by that, any experience that can't be entirely experienced by the child. Right. Anything that's like overwhelming that we can't entirely take in. So it couldn't be something confusing. As you talk about, there's a lot of confusing. How come that loving face now looks sad or angry? That same loving face. Um, the, the heart, the child can't understand it. So uh, so he or she may protect against it. It just, I think I, I won't see that so much because it's, it's overwhelming. I can't, I don't understand it. Um, I, the parents yelling at each other. These are very normal things, right? Very, very normal things we're talking about. 
Well, yeah, in your book, you give an example of a child breastfeeding, and and you describe how the child might might fill themselves up with enough milk and then sort of let their head fall back in a contented, somnolent, you know, well-fed stupor, and then but it's the feeding hour, so mom says, "Okay, well, no, you got to keep feeding," and the and the and the nipple gets shoved back in the mouth, and even that done repeatedly. That's right over a period of time can build in a kind of constriction or a t- attentional pattern, which, you know, may not seem so uh, harmful on the surface. Yes. And, it, and it's, and it's sort of everyday slights in a way <laughs> as you're, as when it's coming to conscience, but it can, this, I think you, you get to is how that can over time and kind of chronic exposure to things like that, start to disable or warp or bring somebody into a more less whole experience of themselves. These are, yes, they're very normal experiences that the child just automatically constricts in the tissues of their body against. And it's a very one-to-one thing. It's like if we try not to cry because mother, father says, you know, big girls don't cry, you know, don't cry, or there's nothing to cry about, uh, you know, grandma's in heaven. And so we we try not to cry. We cannot stop ourselves from crying, except by constricting the anatomy, the physical anatomy involved in crying, uh, as, as well as the energetic anatomy. So, uh, you know, if we, if, um, you know, if we don't want to feel anger, you know, uh, like, like I had, you know, like a well Tension parent might look at the child and go, you know, you don't look good when when you're angry. You know, I don't like that angry face. So try not to feel, yeah, it's normal. That's, you know, then we can't really suppress anger without tightening something in our body. You know, you can, you can try that out for yourself, you know, try, you know, control oh, I know, anger. I know that. Press it. <laughs> right, right. But these are such normal everyday things. And that's why we, we all pretty much grow up with some amount of constriction in our body. It's not a pathological state. It's an it's a normal human state that we've suppressed a little bit our emotional capacity. We've we may have flattened a little bit, you know, we may go into brain freeze. Some of these constrictions, but by, by the way, are um habitual. We go in and out of them. We slide along that pattern of constriction in and out, uh, based on when we see similar circumstances. So, you know, we might brain freeze, you know, when we're intimidated by someone, but then not at other times. And others are um, chronic, where the tissues, and we know this about, one thing we know about passion, the tissues glue together and they become a chronic holding pattern that we're not even aware of. That's just feels like who we are, you know, well, I have, I have trouble talking with other intelligent people, you know, it's just who I am, you know, we may say to ourselves or, you know, or I'm just not all that bright. And then it turns out that we're squishing, actually squishing the anatomy of our intelligence, you know, uh, we can do that. So we all grow up because of these are very ordinary circumstances. We all grow up to some extent limited. And, um, and of course, if there's severe trauma, or if we're particularly sensitive, interestingly, we can we can constrict ourselves quite deeply in very ordinary circumstances. So we all grow up to some extent uh, a limited version of who we could be. The good news about that is that when we go to release it, we're like, oh, wow, I can really 
you know, suddenly I'm writing, I, I can think, you know, oh, I feel, you know, I feel spontaneous love when I see another human being. That's amazing. Uh, the world looks so bright and brilliant. You know, I had no idea the colors were so beautiful. You, you know, so as we regain our full instrument of ourselves, um, we realize that we actually have been, we have been constricting ourselves. We have been limited, but it's a very ordinary state. Yeah, and I mean that what you just described maps into my own experiences. I'm listening. I'm like, oh, you're you're again, just like reading your book. You're articulating things that I've been trying to make sense of um, as I see things play out in my own my own experience. Uh, you mentioned in the book one of the other sources of how trauma gets embodied is through mirroring, right. and mirroring mirroring parents primarily, um, and I've just to sort of echo what you just said, I, I become aware that, you know, I, as I grew up, one of the things that I tried to heal myself with was music. And one of the th parts of my difficulty with music was that I was told I didn't have a good ear. And particularly uh, as my, my aspirations sort of focused on trying to be a jazz saxophonist, not having a good ear was as basically as being, you know, uh, crippled and trying to run the, a thousand meter dash or something like it just wasn't going to happen without, without the year. And I kind of took it as at face value that that's who I was. Mm -hmm. But as I've kind of excavated my own uh, intergenerational dynamics of challenging karma and, and intergenerational trauma, uh, one of the things, and, I, and I'm, if, if she's listening, I don't, there's no judgment here, mom, but like one of the things that I realized is that my mother's own musical ear was never really that good. And it, it, it seems to be a, a manifestation of that intergenerational uh, trauma. Um, now, to, to the point that you just made for, we can get into it maybe, but a few things happened in the last few years where uh, I feel like I kind of woke up to the kind of fundamental consciousness that we're going to talk about that you're, you're pointing to. And without doing anything else uh it's almost as though my capacity here here finally came back you know mm. and it opened up and it's like jesus i i thought it just was the way i was so it's like i took it for 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 what i was and now and I, I haven't really started playing as much but when i listen to jazz what used to seem like an impressive array of uh or an impressive demonstration of, of virtuosic technical uh skill and and intelligence now here it strikes my ear as a hilarious, deep, and impressive conversation. Mm. Like I hear, I hear the language that's right within it, and it's not just with jazz, but classical music too. In a way that uh, a lifetime of listening did not did not um, make itself known to me through. Um, so it this it's it, it is like this thing where capacities, as you said, the full instrument becomes available to you. And I just think it's a, a really wonderful way of putting it. Um, but the, to tie it back to the fascia, um, you know, the, the body workers, former Rolfer, now structural integrationist, Tom Myers, I think once described it as these, these difficult to bear experiences get exported from your, the brain in sort of two, two pathways, either through the chemist, biochemistry or the, the neurophysiology. And that gets the muscles to contract in a certain way. And it's the slow moving 
sort of connective tissue fascia that wraps around and within it, that if those muscles are contracted for a long enough period of time, then the slower forming, slower changing or slower adapting fascia starts to harden around it. And, and it's, it's like, it's like the paper mache around a balloon that sort of starts to get uh, cross-linked and fibrotic. And um, I think the technical word now when the fascial experts told me is densification. There's a densification, a thickening of this fat and a hardening around that pattern, which then kind of locks one's being into the, the emotional patterns that were firing to create that pattern in the first place. That's right. Um, and so the question I had, which you've already sort of answered, but I want to tease it out a little bit more, is that as I read your book, I was wondering, now, is this dimension of fundamental consciousness alone sufficient? Once you wake to, up to that and learn to abide within that, is that sufficient to undo those hardening pockets of constriction? Or as it sounded like you were exploring, it took sort of the the jackhammer of a of a rolfer's elbow, which I've experienced too. I've, I have a wonderful rolfer that I see who works into those hardening hardenings, but then it's, it's, it, it's almost like because you've woken up to the fundamental consciousness, you don't get back into the holding pattern that, that reenacts and, and then reinforces those patterns over and over again. It's because you, you shifting into the fundamental dimension of one's being allows a sense of uh, unshakable safety of, of being from which that the, the, the separate self or the, the small self that we wake up out of that self, small self doesn't have to reenact those emotional uh, disharmonies that create the fascia, fascial tension and, and holding. I'm not sure how clearly I said that, but this yeah, is... no, that's very clear. Uh, I, I mean, there's a lot I'm trying to remember <laughs> all of it. Um, so your first question was, is it enough to, to know yourself as fundamental consciousness? Uh, not always that you know that's the answer to that like like some some of the constrictions will release just from attuning to that uh, foundational level of ourselves and some will not and then we need to do the you know the you know in the realization process we have a specific um, release technique which is basically uh, dropping from the inside of self uh, focusing within the tension letting it go further into tension and release it and and yes, you're right, because we then uh, can claim it with who we, who it feels like we really are, which is that's how fundamental consciousness feels. It's like who we really are. We claim that released territory and uh, becomes more of who we are. Then we're less likely to go back into the constriction next time we see, the next time we're in a situation that mirrors the, we'll say, traumatic childhood situation. Um, but also, there's the, the the cognitive resolving, the knowing. And people also ask me, well, is it necessary to know your childhood history in order to let go of these holding patterns or in order to realize fundamental consciousness? And again, uh, you don't need to, of course, know your whole history, but it's good. I think it's helpful to know, oh, I constricted that because I was afraid of an angry voice. So now every time I hear an angry voice, I'm liable to constrict again, unless I know, oh, there's an angry voice. I know myself, right? I'm not gonna react. Uh, I don't need to react like that. So the, the self-knowledge that comes from the actual knowing why we went into those constrictions to begin with, um, which by the way, is often not addressed in often, um, 
or, or perhaps it is nowadays, uh, that's a very important part. So there's a psychological healing, cognitive aspect of it, uh, understanding aspect of it that goes along with supporting, uh, claiming the openness, claiming the released space in the body. Mm -hmm. I think it might be a good time to pivot to this sort of the, the literally the foundational dimension of your model, which is funda fundamental consciousness. Um, I've heard this discussed in, in different spiritual traditions, uh, whether it's the Advaita Vedanta tradition, uh, the true self, or um, the more of the Tibetan. I, I haven't practiced as much in the Tibetan tradition. It's uh, my, my basis is more in the, the Theravada tradition, which one other question I have for you down the road is, do you see spiritual traditions reinforcing trauma unnecessarily? And that, that, that you can put that on the back burner for now, but it, it felt that way for me in, in certain systems that I was in. And, but when I, when I did come to this more, the, 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 the practices that emphasize this ever present available open awareness, that's, that's ultimately the, the, the ground dimension of one's being that, uh, that both my understanding of practice and my understanding of myself just seemed to, to, to shift into a different mode where it was much freer and, and would flow more easily. Um, but I would say that in, within those traditions, not so much in the Dvaita Vedanta, but it, it, in Tibet, it seems like those, the experience of pointing out that dimension of being are relegated to uh, sort of advanced level practice. Um, and and I'm I'm seeing people like you, people like Locke Kelly, who I know you know, um, are are just going for that experience, are, are, are pointing people into that connection from the very beginning, um, which I think is fantastic. I, I think it's um, I don't have any problem, but I, I do I can imagine people saying, well, who are they to be pointing to this advanced thing right away? And our people aren't ready for it. Yada yada yada. Um, but I think it, I think it plays a very important role in, in the ability to be with the traumas of the, of the self that we wake up from or wake up out of. Um, and I just want to, you know, can you give a sense of how you understand that dimension's role in the healing process? And then also, if you can, just sort of how you might prompt someone to start to recognize that, that, that level of themselves. All, all of the realization process practices aim to uncover that experience of fundamental consciousness. And, and we do it in the realization process by uh, two main ways, by inhabiting the whole body, attuning to the space outside the body, and experiencing, actually attuning to the space pervading inside and out being the same space. And then the space, and I'm calling it space because that's how it's experienced, but the same fundamental consciousness that pervades your body pervades your whole environment. We go through steps in order to get there, but that's the outcome of the one of the two main realization process practices. I've found pretty much everyone can do it. Uh, it's, not, um, it's not the realization itself because fundamental consciousness is an uncontrived, uncreated, uh, effortless state, but it opens us to it. It lets us let go from deep within the whole internal space of the body 
uh, into fundamental consciousness. One thing very important about, and the other exercise is the core attunement, the attuning to what we call the central channel in Buddhism or Shashumna in Hindu yoga, and because that's also an entranceway into this all-pervasive, well, let me say the experience of this all-pervasive ground of being. Uh, it's very important, I, and I don't really like the term open awareness because people will even go, oh, open awareness, they'll make a gesture out from their head. And, uh, and it, we're not in fundamental consciousness unless it pervades our own body, mm. our whole own body as well as our environment. It's not something outside of ourselves. It's also not something different than ourselves. When we uncover it, it feels like who we are. And in order to get to that experience, I have found that, that we need to open to it through the, through the central channel, through the subtle core of the body, um, in order for us to actually realize our own identity as fundamental, as fundamental consciousness. And now I've forgotten the rest of your question. Yeah, so, well, the, the, the other side of that question was the progression. So you start with that and then work with the, with the, 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 the traumatic experience versus, um, you know, you, you compared another model. We don't have to get into it quite yet either, but the, the, you compared how your model is different from working at the level of the fashion within the, and with the awareness within the fascia um, compared to a, like, the nervous system. Yeah. The nervous, system. the nervous system. Right. So I, I'd like to hear a little bit more about that, but it's more, um, as I said to somebody at one point, um, when we're in a constricted state, it's like we're trapped within the 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 the, the tempest of the teapot inside it, and and it's as though you're you're starting from this place of shifting out of that, or and again, I, which doesn't negate the body, but it, it it's 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 opening, it's transcending and including that dynamic, and um, it's my sense is that it gives the the person that's that's grappling with this issue a much safer space from which they can then unpack and 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 process through something i i feel that's true uh, when we can actually inhabit the body and attune to ourselves as fundamental consciousness we've reached a level of ourselves that's never been injured that's just that we can uncover and it's our own internal wholeness it's our deepest contact with ourselves and everything else so no no matter how Badly, we feel we've been injured psychologically, how, how terribly we have been traumatized if, if there's been severe trauma. There's that level of our being just waiting there for us to uncover it whole. Now, uh, there are, of course, people with whom who have to go slowly into that, mm -hmm. where it was so dangerous to be in the body that the that's the progression into inhabiting the body needs to be done little by little otherwise they are going to feel again like they're very vulnerable like they're going to be you know hit oh, wow. again um but but the great majority of the people i work with are able to inhabit their body to some extent right and attune and uncover this ground level of their being that gives them a container in, uh, within which to tolerate uh, really bad memories, uh, surges of negative emotion, uh, like anger or, or grief or terror even, um, 
without losing their basic identity, without being shattered by it. So in general, yes, it provides a safer context within which to do trauma work. Uh, I think we're, I think, you know, I, I know it is presented in the spiritual traditions as an advanced state. And for all we know, maybe that was true, you know, uh, you know, in the Middle Ages. Um, maybe people really weren't uh, ready for it. Um, I I tend to also kind of have a, put a kind of a jaundiced eye on it and think maybe it was um, spiritual uh, capitalism. <laughs> you know, first you have to do this and then you have to do that. And then, you know, if you're still with me in 10 years, I'm going to give you the real goods. Um, so there, it's possible that, <laughs> that that also came into it. I You know, I just, that's just a, you know, I'm just a, I was brought up, I'll blame it on my parents, brought up in a very skeptical well, no, well, no. Just to, before I forget this, I mean, I remember hearing, I think Sam Harris write about this in his book, where he got pointed out instructions from Dilgo Kensei Rinpoche, and he wouldn't repeat them in the book because there was there was this sort of um, aura of secrecy and and potency within the secrecy, that secret secrecy that it would somehow be a, a dilution or a bastardization of it to to share, but it's it's almost to me that you know pardon the metaphor but it's it's like if you know how to get out of a burning house and 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 <laughs> please tell me right? <laughs> yeah, right please just say it just say it you don't have to like go through the person's like okay well when this is how arson starts there's a match there's some fuel there's this and that. you know you don't have to go through all these steps to get there you just like this is what's happening this is the doorway out step yeah. out and then you can know how to call the, the the emergency services and help other people out yeah. So, you know, I mean, I guess the real dangers that, that they are kind of trying to guard against are people, uh, I don't I, I don't even know about it, teaching it incorrectly, but, you know, thinking that you've achieved something and, you know, feeling all puffed up about it when you really haven't, when you haven't really understood it because you haven't gone through the steps or or whatever. Uh, but I, I don't adhere to that. And maybe, you know, this is like a typical sort of, uh, you know, 21st century American view, but I feel like, yeah, if we, you know, there are no rules. This is our own, the foundation of our own being. Nobody owns this but us. And if we can, if we have a way to get there, then, then we should, you know. Um, Yeah. And, and, and just to that end, I know Buddhism adapted to whatever cultural uh, milieu that it, it got implanted into. And uh, we're definitely witnessing a development of an American Dharma. And I see things what, like what you're doing is, is an integral part of that. Um, there, I just lost the train of thought I had around um, the, the stages, but uh, let's see. Um, I'm hoping that thoughts comes back and it's, you know, that can be, um, well, well, oh, no, 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 now what it was. Okay. It's back. Um, because I think many people hold a kind of a idealistic, if not Mickey Mouse understanding of what awakening means. Like you, you can, once you're awakened, then, then all your troubles with the world have come to an end and suffering is never going to rise again. And my sense of it, it's, it's, it's a, you get glimpses um, and you may not even know how to describe them for a long time. You get glimpses of what an awakened experience is, but it, there's a way that you fall back into sort of 
habit patterns of being, um, even though you've had a legitimate real glimpse of a deeper dimension uh, of who you are. And I, I think that's what, that's what I wanted to ask you about is what have you seen around that pattern? And particularly, um, there's a, a passage that John Wellwood meant, writes in his book on the psychology of awakening. Um, do you know, do you know of his work? I'm, I'm guessing. Oh, yes, sure. yeah, yeah. He's, but he said, um, as awareness starts to move beyond the boundaries of the conditioned personality structure, this expansion inevitably challenges that challenges that structure, flushing out old subconscious reactive patterns that often emerge with a vengeance. And, um, you know, th th there's a way that sometimes, and, and I've sort of seen this in myself, that when I have a, a real deep dunk of experience of this 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 uh, fundamental consciousness, that uh, it's almost as though the, the 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 bats start come flying out, and there can be what I would call you know loosely call shadow content that that comes up, and I can see behaviors that seem flagrantly out of alignment with what I aspire to be. And um, it 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 convey, conveys or contains its own level of pain in that, but it to me it feels like stuff that I could I wasn't able to see in more of my contracted state. And I think my sense now is that the ego seems to to be a, a filtering have a filtering role in terms of keeping repressed content repressed. Once that 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 it's been alleviated of its role, it, it seems that there's a way that uh, that repressed material now can make its way into consciousness to be integrated. Um, but it's by no means a linear process, and I, I, I'm very curious to hear uh, professionals like yourself around what you've witnessed in terms of any of that. Well, I look at it more concretely than that, you know, because you know the ego is a it's a funny term doesn't particularly uh, refer to anything specific. Um, when we get deeper in touch with ourselves, we do uh, come up against and dissolve to some extent these holding patterns. They and fundamental consciousness is consciousness. We become more aware of them. Where we can much more easily see ourselves. We can see what we're thinking. Oh my God! I've been spent the whole day telling myself I'm stupid. That's wild, you know. Whereas before that wouldn't have been, you know part of, uh, right? Uh, so we we witness our own behavior and our responses much more observantly as fundamental consciousness and old feelings, but momentarily, you know, they move through us and out as, as we touch into them and they dissolve and, and release. We feel them, old griefs, old terrors, old angers. Um, and then they and then they pass. I think I think one of the advantages I'll say of the realization process, doing the practice over and over, it's just a practice, uh, is we go right towards cultivating a, the stabilization mm -hmm. of fundamental consciousness. Now, now that happens after a while. You don't need to do the practice anymore. You're just we you know the technical term actually in in the spiritual literature is stable stabilized there because you're just there as fundamental consciousness it can still you're still opening to it right it can still deepen still widen but you've made that that real switch um now of course you still feel pain uh, for one thing you feel present day pain right a loss uh you're gonna mourn 
right? It doesn't turn us into emotional zombies. I think that's a, a misunderstanding that's actually become kind of prevalent in the spiritual world lately that we we stop being emotional emotionally responsive we may not react with from the child self mm-hmm. right like gimme gimme you know we may not be doing that but we lose someone or something like that uh or 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 we're oppressed you know we may feel anger uh right like i think what's going on in, in america is you know the righteous anger that's like good anger you know it should should be angry um if you've been oppressed and so um so we don't become we don't become zombies and even our behavioral patterns do dissipate you know and again we can see them you know like if i'm you know waiting for my husband to come home driving late at night from the city for example and i get into oh my god he's probably this or he's probably that and i can see that right away i'm like hey you know, I know that point, you know, like, my mother was like that too, you know, call me when you get to the corner. You know? uh, so I see it, you know, and then, and so then I can much better deal with it. It hasn't gone away. It's, it's like, I don't, I don't get to a state where, it, well, I hope he comes home. Maybe he won't, maybe he will, you know, mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't get to that kind of thing. No, you know, our real bonds with people um, and the, and the pain that those bonds sometimes engender, uh, that's part of the richness of our present day lives. And, and as far as I know, as far as my own experience, those, those still, uh, those still activate, those still uh, come into play. Um, but there is a source of happiness and peacefulness and a kind of underlying contentment um, that comes in fairly readily as we know ourselves as this. And I've seen this in so many people. This is not like some exalted state. It's just like, it's okay. You know, there's a sense of well-being. There's a sense of uh, whatever happens, I'll be able to deal with it. You know, Um, so, uh, so, um, and there's actually happiness inside the body. There's actually love inside the body, which is an amazing thing. And, you know, it's not talked about much, but, what is that? Hey, you know, <laughs> you know. Uh, so, um, you know, so we can like live in that sort of just ongoing, low-level, content, contented feeling as fundamental consciousness, which goes a long way to alleviating patterns of anxiety and depression. Yeah, speaking to that kind of misconception, I think is that is popularly present in the spiritual world. There's a, there's a, that idea that people are just going to have less emotional responses to things if they're somehow awake. Um, but also there's a conflation between worry and care. And, and I think the, 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 you speak to and you write about qualities that, are, that seem to be intrinsic to this dimension of fundamental consciousness, like love, compassion, connection. It's, it's, it's a very caring attention, but it's not caring from the from a worry-based thought but it's 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 hard to describe it's 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 a wordless experience but it's it doesn't feel personal it feels just as a fact that's right that's right of course it's personal and that it's echoing forth from the our, the deepest of our own person but it but yeah it's not uh and then what will happen to me <laughs> kind of feeling, you know, uh, so much as uh, an actual genuine caring for 
for other the other person. So one of the, one of the other maybe this week before I move on, come back to, if we loop back to how your model is is different from the the nervous system model of of addressing uh, trauma. I'm not totally familiar with the, with the, some of the other models, so if, I'd just be curious to hear what you had to say about that. Well, the prevalent model now is based on uh, somatic experiencing. Uh, Peter Levine's uh, very important work, uh, and many of the people who came after him uh, kind of based their work on on him. And he's he, you know, he recognized that we go into a fight or flight or freeze mode the same as animals do. Um, uh, when there's trauma, and he started out talking about real trauma, car accidents, rape, you know, trauma, and then yeah, there's a, and um, and so and so then he works to, uh, you know, I think in practice it's not that different than working with the fashion. I mean, he, but he he does things to kind of shake that out the way animals will shake out when something's happened to them, um, and any of his other methods as well. I haven't studied either. I haven't studied somatic experience either, so I don't want to I don't want to diminish it or minimize it in some way. But I know that many of the people come to me to learn the realization process have already studied that. And um, uh, my my problem with that, with, with, with that mode, which is so popular these days, is that it sometimes seems too general to me. You know, people will say, I feel activated. Mm. You know, my, my nervous system has gone into the sympathetic. And I'll be like, why? <laughs> you know, I mean, like, why? You know, well, every time I see a person, I go into sympathetic mode and then I have to do like deep breathing, you know, water. And I'm like, no, no, we need to know more than that. We need to more specifically, what is it about being with another person that makes you feel that? And when you feel activated, what is the emotion? Are you feeling fear? Are you feeling anger? Are you feeling abandoned what are you feeling specifically not just activated so um so that's my uh, that's my concern with that work but altogether um they they go together you, you know it's very hard if you're if you're really just in sympathetic mode to you know you're really in a hyper traumatized state all the time then you're going to be hyper vigilant and it's going to be hard to inhabit the body on the other hand, if you inhabit the body, it calms down the nervous system. So they go together, you know, they're not in conflict with each other at all. Um, it's just that um, that I am bringing in, as not too many people are these days, uh, the, it used to be, you know, with bioenergetics and Reiki work, uh, more whole body working with what Reiki called armoring, which was really uh, muscular tension. Um, working with the fascia more like how we organize ourselves rather than just the fight, flight, or freeze mechanism. Yeah, I could be off here. And listening to describe that, and I realize I don't want to create too much of a straw man around the somatic experiencing process, given I don't know much about it. But in the way you characterize it, it sounds like somebody that would be engaging with that process, They, for lack of better terminology, it sounds like the way they're addressing is it from the level of their traumatized self, like the traumatized self has to do something to, to sort of shift out of that, that uh, 
the the nerve the, the parasit uh, the, yeah the, the sympathetic fight or flight uh, hyper aroused state whereas in your process it sounds like you're doing something but it's you, you, rather than like trying to do something behaviorally in, initially it's not, it's not a behavioral modification it's actually a identity level modification you shift from being the one that's traumatized to uh, feel the fundamental consciousness that holds and connects to the trauma, but isn't defined by it. And that, that, that seems to be, at least to my ears, a, a very, very specific delineation between the two models. Yeah, I, I certainly think, uh, you know, again, without being an expert on somatic experiencing, I certainly think that that's part of the difference. Yeah. And that, that ties into a question I had for you around uh, accessing fundamental conscious or learning to recognize and wake up to it. Um, you've said it in a few different ways, but it's like, there's, it sounds like there's part of the, the, the instructions you give are bridge practices to glimpse it. And when once it's glimpsed enough, it, it spontaneously becomes the default experience of oneself. That's right. Um, and the, the challenging thing that I find in, in like, this is getting into like more meditative practice or spiritual practice, but the challenging thing I find as a, as a communicator on this is that everybody comes to the practice thinking they, they're the ones that have to do it to generate it or to get it or to, um, to, to, to attain that capacity. And so it's all being done from a sense of self to get to it. And it, you know, like this is the paradox of Advaita. Like the sense of self can't do it. It's 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 the it's the it's the unburdening of that sense of self or the step shifting out of that sense of self that that reveals this other dimension. Um, and I, I'm just wondering if you could speak to how you help if people are are getting frustrated in their inability to access it, which the, they can't do from the, that sense of their being. How do you <laughs> thread that needle? I actually don't uh, make uh, divisions between small self or deeper self or true self or this self or that self or the ego self. I feel like there's just one self trying to get through. <laughs> so so it it actually is who we are, you know, whatever we want to call that self. Uh, who goes, who does the practice, who who recognizes the constrictions, who lets them go, who who then feels more and more like who they always somehow really knew that they were, that 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 actual that the actuality of being. Um, so um, dealing with frustration, that's um, that's very important in this. I try to emphasize that they're just practices. Um, you're not meant to like do the practice and be there. If, if you could do that, we well, wouldn't even need the practice, you know, or just do it once, it wouldn't be a practice. You're meant to do it uh, consistently, very much, you know, come out of teaching dance, very much like training to be a, a ballet dancer, to do it consistently, uh, you know, a little bit every day or twice a week, whatever it is, gently without a lot of uh, hope or expectation uh, because some days it's going to feel better, some days it's going to feel worse. Uh, to be, a, to be, you know, in this work, the realization process, I'm really hoping to help people to be their own teacher. You know, there's no guru in this 
in this practice. Uh, there's just these exercises, just the practices. So they become their own teacher. And for that, they need to be gentle, patient, <laughs> accepting teacher. You know, mm-hmm. um, if they feel exhausted from it, uh, they should take a break. It, you know, uh, if they feel like doing a whole lot of it, they should. But the, what's important is the consistency of the of the practice and the gentleness of it. Mm. Yeah, that's great. Speaking of spiritual practices, um, I know you've you spent a lot of time in the Zen world. You mentioned a Zen monastery. Where, where did you do your practice in Zen? I, I lived for 13 months, counting the months, at the Zen Mountain Monastery in Mount Tremper in New York. When I first went there, it was called the Zen Arts Center. Yep. Later became the Zen Mountain Monastery. That was in 1981. And this was a Dido Laurie. That's right, Dido Laurie. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah. yeah. A, friend of, a couple of friends of mine were, were very much uh, training in training there too. Um, so I'm just curious about that. But the do you have a sense now, like from from all your years of work, do you have a sense of some of the sort of the, the sticky problems or sticky methodologies and and spiritual in the spiritual terrain that you feel get into, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, that they get engaged with in a way that are kind of um, become like unnecessary impediments. I do. I have a lot, I have a lot to say on that. Where, where do you want me to start? <laughs> I mean, your, your top 10 list. <laughs> well, the Zen monastery. Um, one thing I don't like the, I don't like the teaching of no self. Because I feel, you know, you know, it just, I mean, it goes to the same place, but I just feel like it it makes it makes people erase themselves in a way that they've already been doing uh, in reaction to painful experiences all their lives. They've been making themselves less. And so what you get is a kind of the sort of the Eastern or Asian version of Western piety you know like i'm a very pious person i'm very religious and 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 people who engage in that type of of asian uh spirituality will be like i don't exist there's nobody here this they'll they'll just call me this one you know this one yeah any 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 evidence of the self is 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 just confirmation of your spiritual enlightenment so you, you you disown it so they disown it. So they never get to the depth of who they really are, which which is themselves. I mean, that we still are ourselves. We're, it's just that we never realize that who we really are is this wonderful expanse of fundamental consciousness. But but it's who it's who we are. It's you know you're still you, but you're really you. Uh, you know. So um, so I don't think that 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 the way that selflessness is taught is. Uh, is helpful. I mean, I think it's helpful to some people. Some people who are extremely uh, narcissistic may benefit from no, you don't exist. Oh, you know, I, you know that might be helpful for them. I, I, I tend not to think so. I tend to think that that extreme narcissism is even more of a fragmentation away from who they really are, and that inhabiting the body and really experiencing themselves would be more helpful than just telling them, stop it, you know, not, you're not that, you're not, 
Yeah, you know, as a recovering narcissist, I would say uh, I was very drawn to those teachings. You know, I'm kind of a case study of this. Uh, I was very drawn to no self teachings, but they they just shoved everything under the rug. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, pursuing it that way, just I wasn't addressing the the issues. I was just spiritualizing it and putting it in the closet or under the rug. Yes. Yeah. So yes, yeah, so I think that's very problematic. At the Zen monastery, there was a lot of drama also around awakening. And I don't think that's helpful. Uh, that might have just been Dido's uh, personality, his style. He would he would talk about the great death, you know, and you're going to jump off the cliff. And we'd be like, well, I don't want to jump off the cliff. And of course you don't because, you know, you're afraid to lose who you are. <laughs> right. like, oh. it, it didn't fit, didn't fit at all the process that I was actually going through doing that meditation at the wonderful Zen monastery every day, um, very gradually uh, getting deeper and deeper into myself. wasn't anything like jumping off a cliff. So, um, so I, I, so I didn't think that was, uh, I didn't think that was worthwhile. I think a lot of the ritual that people are made to go through. And as you say, like the secrecy and they're, we're in this private little club, don't talk about it. I think, you know, obviously for some people that is going to be helpful, but for others, I think it's, it's not. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the shift I've been trying to make in my, my teaching now is that, you know, the, the, the all experiences that go on in the practice are part of the practice and, and should be, should be cared for as conditions for awakening and not seen as some sort of, um, ineptitude that the fact that you can't get the technique correct or whether it's yes. dealing with wandering mind, like I feel like the wandering mind uh, prohibition is is totally unnecessary and yes. um, that that and also now I, I really do feel like the the pedestal putting awakening on this high va- vaunted pedestal yes. and, and when I say awakening again I'm just talking about glimpses that get that slowly get um, stabilized one gets stabilized so it's not like and it's not as awakening for me doesn't necessarily initially mean perfection it's it's your mood like once you're awake then to quote another zen teacher uh who was a capital row she said once you're awake now you have the light to deal with like the self (laughs) you know all the all the karma that you were creating that you couldn't see before Mm, Uh, um and so there's a way it never means perfection right but it's sometimes but you know in the tibetan tradition it is called the great perfection oh yes oh yes (laughs) So these, these traps of conceptualization. Yeah. yeah. Um, that's, that's good to hear. Um, and then in, I also am curious just to pick your brain a little bit. In the Tibetan tradition, what, what, what flavor did you uh, find yourself in? Uh, you know, I live in Woodstock, New York. So, so we have the seed. Pick of your the- flavor. <laughs> well, yes. Yeah. But the, the main flavor here is, is we have the seed of the Karmapa here. Uh, so it's Kagyu. And um, I never, you know, I've never actually joined a religion, uh, partly because I come from an atheistic background and, what you know, it's hard to undo that, uh, you know, suddenly have, have a religion. But also because I could never choose, you know, they all were wonderful and they all seemed to have limitations. By the time I, I got to make the rounds, I wasn't able to choose. So, um, so I never actually, I mean, we did, we did become members and pay our dues, my husband and I at the Tibetan monastery, but, but we never joined the religion. We went, we 
we loved getting bopped on the head and, you know, feeling high for a couple of days. Uh, and we, we went to a number of teachings, but we never considered ourselves. I never considered myself a Tibetan Buddhist. Um, I'm very well read, you know, I, I, you know, over the years, I've had many years to read. So I'm fairly well read in uh, the Dzogchen and, uh, tradition and, um, and the Kagyu tradition. Yeah. I realized that, that question was a little bit of a staller question because as you're speaking, the more, more pressing question came up, if I may, um, the, in your model, you're a, you're a practicing psychotherapist. And so that's the one thing we haven't really spoken to. I don't directly is like, what role do you see psycho, psycho, psychological work, psychodynamic work playing in the, 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 the healing of, of trauma and, um, like from, from the place of, of waking up to fundamental consciousness, what's the, how do you see the, the, the psychological work playing into that? Yeah. I'm, I'm retired from private practice as a therapist now, but I was a therapist for, I don't know, 40 years, long time. Um, I, now in what I teach, um, the, the psychological healing is a very important part of releasing the holding patterns and resolving the reasons for going into those constrictions, the, the memories and so forth. I think, you know, at a certain point, the point that most of the people come to work with me are at spiritual awakening and psychological healing are the same process. Mm -hmm. Knowing yourself, feeling whole, um, being, you know, not reacting from a childhood place uh, to a large extent, um, being able to to bond with other people without loss of inward contact with yourself, so attachment uh, resolution, all, all all of those all of those things uh, are part and parcel of knowing yourself as fundamental consciousness and releasing the the holding patterns, right? So it's so I find it's quite important. Yeah, and that's that's certainly been part of my path, and. I, I, I got into meditation first to to try to bring my problems to a resolution. And then the, it's almost as though the meditation, uh, the, the phrase I came up with, I saw yesterday in my head was um, meditation makes everyday things that are implicit make meditation makes them very explicit. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and as the things became more and more explicit, I, I found I needed, I needed to get into therapy. Um, and and I found that you know enormously helpful to to sort of talk talk through these things. Yeah, um, yeah. Do you do you, would you would that be kind of a blanket recommendation you you give to people that were were on a spiritual path that you know if you're if you really are um, interested in exploring uh, all dimensions of yourself that it, it, it's yeah I think if you're really interested in awakening to, to yourself. To knowing yourself as fundamental consciousness, it's an important part of the process. Yes, I recommend it. Yeah, because I mean, there is this kind of prevalent view among some teachers, not all teachers now, but some teachers who say, all you need to do is wake up and then, you know. Yeah, I don't think you will. I don't, you know, I don't think you will wake all the way up uh, because you won't get to the real constrictions, you know, the, um, the, the, they'll always be there. I, I saw that very clearly. In fact, when I lived at the Zen monastery, the people, uh, monks even, who had practiced for, for decades and decades and decades, they were so su suppressed. 
you know, and then there was like a lot of light up here uh, above their head, but but they were so suppressed emotionally. Um, you could you could kind of you could almost you could see the pain in their bodies, the emotional pain. And um, so I think that's you know for living a happy life, of course, that's uh, important to release. But it's also I don't think you get to the actual subtle pervasive consciousness if you don't open to it throughout your whole being. Mm-hmm. Uh, the contemporary teacher Adya Shanti, uh, you may have heard of him, uh, speaks to awakening of the head, the heart, and the gut. Mm-hmm. And I didn't really quite understand that for quite a while. Um, and reading your book, it's it struck me that you're speaking to similar sort of centers of gravity or, or centers of loca- location where uh, your being can be uh, accessed, whether it's through, through, the, through the head or the, the heart or the pelvis. Mm-hmm. And um, do you see those unfolding sequentially or do you see it as it could go any dirt? It could start any, for like when someone could wake up from the pelvis first or wake up in the heart first, or wake up in the head first. How do you make sense of a statement like that? The waking up of the head, heart and, 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 and gut. Well, um, I mean, we had to wake up to our entire body and our entire being, which is in, in our entire body. Uh, but yes, uh, we can, you know, in the realization process, we work with the subtle core of the body, the shushumna, very an experience of a subtle channel that runs all the way through from the center of the bottom of the torso and probably below to the center of the top of the head and above. And um <clears throat> That's our entranceway into fundamental consciousness. Uh, we need to open throughout that whole core in order to know our own being as fundamental consciousness. And yes, in the realization process, we go into the center of the head, the center of the heart, the heart chakra, and the center of the pelvis. And we only do those three points in order to get the, the whole range. Really, you can go in anywhere, anywhere along it, and eventually you have to open throughout the whole core. Um, so it's, you know, the head, heart, and gut is just a kind of a, a simple formulaic way of, of saying that. So it's understandable to people, but really we're opening our whole being. Each, each, each location is a portal into the, the broader opening, right? Yes, absolutely. And, and to answer your question, yes, you can, you ever, in fact, every one of us will be more open to one of those than another, um, but we don't get to fundamental consciousness until the whole, until we open with our whole being. Well, yeah, no, when you were describing some of the characters you're seeing at the Zen monastery, it, it, it sort of mapped into my experience. I, I feel like I had a very clear awareness of a witness as you know, just reading Ken Wilber's book 25 years ago. And, and you know, I, I really, and then I, that became my center of location for my practice, uh, not aware that I was completely cut off of the territories below the neck. Yeah. Um, uh, and that's slowly been, been starting to open up. Um, so, and then I think in your book, you also describe how someone might have a more emotional heart center opening, but it's not tempered or balanced by, that's you know, true. other, other, other dimensions of one's oneself. One thing I was, this is a sort of a small point, but I was very intrigued to hear you talk about this, that, in the realization process, when you do encourage people to open up to the central channel through these energetic or uh, 
these centers of the head, heart, and, and, and pelvis, the encouragement was to breathe very thinly, I think was the word you used, yeah, right? We do the core breath. Right. What's your understanding of that? Why? Because in yoga, there's this kind of a popular idea that a deeper breath is the, is the one that's healing and, and et cetera. But I, as I've been reading more about the physiology of breathing and the biochemistry of breathing, it's clear that a shallower breath, a thinner breath, I think, is, 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 is in some ways better for, for the biochemistry of the, of the blood um, and getting oxygen to the tissue. But and you don't have to go into that. I'm just saying, what's your sense? It sounds like you might it's have- It's not a, a shallow breath. The core not breath is not a shallow breath. Uh, it's a fine breath uh, that can actually fill the whole body, right? So it can be a long, full breath that that comes in and out through that, that very small aperture of the core point. And the, and the point of doing that is to integrate- the breath with the most subtle level of the energy system. So that's not a scientific statement, right, it's right. an experiential description. And and um, I think it's actually mentioned in Tibetan Buddhism as well as one thing riding on another. But anyway, yeah, we mix the breath and the energy, the most subtle level of the energy system, and then the breath is everywhere in the body, right? And that breath everywhere in the body enables us to be stable as fun, as the pervasive space of fundamental consciousness. <clears throat> I'm curious what you think of this. I was reflecting on that as I was munching on my lunch prior to this interview. And um, what you describe as feeling the breath energy through the whole body seems to line up with exactly what the Buddha is talking about in his sutta, his sutta on the full awareness of breath, where the third or fourth contemplation, getting getting get into be, training oneself to be sensitive to the whole body breathing in, sensitive to the whole body breathing out. And and, the, and then the fourth contemplation there is that once the person is able to sense the whole body breathing in and out, the bodily formation, which is very clunky language, but the, the body feels calm, becomes calm. And I think as I heard what you just what I heard what you just said is that if if it's like the breath energy is brought there so that one can tune into the energetic dimension, the subtle the subtle energy and feel the breath energy pervading through the whole, like the, uh, rippling through the subtle energy of the body. And it become you, one. Right. It becomes one. And, and it's almost like a, if you blow too hard on a flame, it's going to go out. That's so it's right. like, you want to just titrate a, 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 a soft amount of, of air to that flame so that it burns clearly. Yeah. So, right. So maybe like the deep breath of the, like there's bellow breaths and things like that. I feel like it's, it's so gross, like meaning big and obvious that it will, will blunt one's perception to the subtle dynamic. Yeah. A quieter breath, thinner breath, even though it's experienced throughout with, with fullness, I don't want to, it's, it, it's, it permits that perception. Yes. That's, yes. Yeah, so that's how we do it, the core breath. And it helps open the whole core, so it helps us open to fundamental consciousness. Great. Look, Judith, you've been, uh, you've been fantastic in humoring my questions. I really have, have loved talking to you. Um, you I know you've, you're fairly prolific in terms of the amount of work you produced, and generally with prolific folks, they... They, their own work goes through developmental a developmental process too. Is there are there particular books or or um, things that people can look up to look into if they want to learn more about you that you would re recommend as being sort of the 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 deepest synthesis of your your current view of things? 
You know, I think that my language has gotten clearer over the years. So probably the clearest presentation <clears throat> and also the fullest would be the last book, Trauma and the Undone Body, um, uh, where I talk also about so that also about the, the psychological aspect of the work. Um, the, my first book, my first book, which I wrote a long, long time ago, um, I, I was much less careful about the statements, the kind of metaphysical statements that I was throwing around, you know. And, and so I've gotten, you know, because I've been in dialogue now with people all these many years and answered so many questions and, and concerns about my point of view, I, I've honed the language and also, you know, it's become more and more sober. So, um, so yeah, so I think as the books go along, I think belonging here, I mean, each book focuses a little bit differently. Belonging here, I'm focusing particularly on uh, the difficulties of very sensitive people, people who are very uh, spiritually sensitive to vibration and so forth, and the kind of problems that that can cause as causes as children. And I also, I think maybe that book, Belonging Here, has the clearest description of embodiment from my point of view that I've written. Mm. Yeah. So it's called Belonging Here? Belonging Here. Yeah. So those are the last two books, Belonging Here and Trauma and the Unbound Body. And and in the podcast, I, I actually listened to a podcast that my friend did with you, Brooke Thomas, which was great, oh, yeah. co great conversation. Um, it sounds like you're also doing trainings. You give trainings now for teacher, your realization. Teacher certification podcast. trainings. I've been doing that a while. I, I, I love teaching the work, and so I love uh, communicating to other people how to teach it and to have that uh, extreme pleasure of being uh, somewhat instrumental in being able to observe that coming alive mm -hmm. that occurs as people know themselves as fundamental consciousness. So, yeah, I teach a lot of teacher trainings. Great. Well, I'll, I'll include the link to those books and um, your website in the show notes. But like I said at the outset, thank you so much for, for your work, but also thank you for your generosity and time and coming on the podcast. Oh, I, this, is, this has been a wonderful exposure for me. And um, I just, as I said, to, I think the email, I want everybody that I love to read your book. Thank you. <laughs> Okay, I hope you enjoyed that interview. I know it's one that I will be returning to time and again to, to back into the, 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 all the various forms of wisdom that Judith has to share. Um, again, look into the show notes. I have a link there for her website. I have a link for her book, Trauma and the Unbound Body. Both are wonderful resources, and I highly encourage you to check them out, particularly if you're a yin yoga teacher and or practitioner of yin yoga. Okay, thanks so much for your attention today. Uh, thank you for your presence, and I look forward to seeing you in the next episode. Stay strong and practice on. <laughs>